Well, welcome to season two of Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Buse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And I am joined by my world-class triathlete, fellow co-founder, senior counsel, and freedom fighter, David Yurishami. David, welcome. You're fresh off of a race in, uh, in Mexico, where once again, you won your age class. And my understanding, you also would have won the the uh, age class below and finished second in the the one below that. So uh, congratulations on uh, on your continued success with these uh, with these triathlons. That one I think was a a half triathlon. I forget what the the term you actually use for that. But welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we use the half Ironman, or they call it a IM seventy point three, representing seventy point three miles, one point two mile swim. 56 mile bike and a half marathon of 13.1 miles. And I well, finished in it, five hours and 14 minutes. So, yeah, yeah. boy, it's just, that makes me tired just thinking about it. Hey, uh, in, in addition to being a, uh, a world class triathlete and uh, civil rights litigator with, uh, with AFLC, you've also had many decades of, of uh, corporate uh, litigation and, and being an expert in, uh, in corporate law. And uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about um, out of the gate here, as it were, because it's a story that's uh, really kind of front and center of the news domestically. Obviously the Russia-Ukraine war is, is, uh, has a lot of, a lot of um, attention, rightfully so. But here domestically, uh, one of the interesting issues that has arisen is the fact that Elon Musk has purchased a large number of shares of Twitter. I believe he purchased somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 9%. He's a 9% owner of, of the public shares of Twitter, which I also heard that uh, shortly after he made that, which is a large purchase, I think he spent billions of dollars to, to purchase that num num number of shares to get a 9% uh, interest in Twitter, that the, uh, the stock prices uh, went up in value 30 some odd per percent. So almost overnight, he also acquired an additional $980 million into his, uh, his incredible wealth. And I think he's only in his fifties, if I'm not mistaken. This guy is a, uh, he's a business genius, but it's, it's very interesting because I, I've seen, um, you know, tweets and stories and, and interviews that he's done where he's been very critical of this whole, you know, wokeness of, uh, of the, uh, you know, of the business sector and the way, you know, social media like Twitter is, is censoring, uh, censoring speech. So it's kind of an interesting um, little twist here that you have this, uh, this billionaire purchasing as many shares of Twitter, which uh, anyone who's uh, ob objective and reasonably minded realizes that Twitter is no friend of conservatives. Right. If you uh, if you engage in any speech that is uh, favorable, to the conservative viewpoint, you're likely to run up against the uh, the Twitter um, censors. And, you know, Twitter is a powerful organization, as we've discussed before. They they could potentially and, and likely may have um, in, in this past election influence elections in, in so many ways because of the, the power. Of them. So it's very interesting that he that he acquired that much interest and Twitter. And, and what this is leading to is because we've had discussions offline as a as a lay person on the business side, as it were, it's like, well, how how does the, the purchase of enough stock that you have a nine percent interest? How would that shift the balance of power when you think about it's only nine percent out of 100 percent? But so how is it that a somebody like Elon Musk with purchasing nine percent interest and now he's become apparently a board member, or I don't know if that's automatic or, or how that operates. In my understanding from news sources that as a bit, as a, as a board member, um, at most he could acquire up to 15% uh, share interest in the company. Again, I'm not sure if that's as a matter of, you know, corporate law or how Twitter's governed or, so I'm, I'm asking you to not just explain to me, but to our listeners, because I find this fascinating this whole, um, you know, interest and in purchase in Twitter, and how does this, how does this actually work? Is it possible? Is this part of a, you know, a so-called hostile takeover of Twitter, or could it be? I mean, what? Explain to us how this, how this all works out in, uh, from the uh, corporate law perspective. Well, there's a lot to talk about. I'll try to keep it relatively brief, but I want to get enough in the weeds that people can understand. First of all, I think. And this is just my personal view and, and what he said about himself, that Elon Musk is 
shall we say, quirky, even crazy in many respects. I mean, just a nutty kind of guy, but he's brilliant in what he does. He's brilliant in the substance of the businesses, and he's been in, you know, software, um, tunnel boring, obviously space exploration, uh, building electric cars. Um, so you 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 certainly can't um, criticize him at the level of his brilliance and business and in and in the the substance of business and many different kinds of businesses. So clearly he has something in mind here. We also know he's an outspoken libertarian. He believes, he calls himself a free speech absolutist. Um, I know, you know, people talk about free speech in absolute terms and they don't really mean it, but um, he clearly is um, a hardcore libertarian, at least in many ways. So um, we know also he's been highly critical of Twitter um, and their free speech, or their, let's just call it their speech restrictions, because as a purely private company, Twitter can restrict speech. Um, we'll talk and kind of go into the, again, the um, lawsuit we have against Twitter, where they actually conspired with the Biden administration, but that takes them out of a purely private actor. So what would Elon Musk's motivation be and then how would he accomplish it if it includes something like a hostile takeover so elon musk could be making a purely business decision obviously he invested billions and he probably knew that if he came on board with that kind of interest that the company would invite him on the board and it's not required by corporate law you can own any amount and be a board member or not be a board member so, but Twitter made a business decision. They probably also knew that his involvement, because he is such a successful businessman, his involvement as a major shareholder and as a board member would help the company. Twitter wants its stock price to go up. So they, they like that as much as anybody else, as much as Elon Musk, that when he came on board, public purchasers saw that as a positive move either ideologically, they're free speech types, or business-wise, and they invested, and the more people who demand a stock, the price goes up. So um, that's not atypical. So he could have made a purely business decision, but given his criticism, and he immediately started kind of chiding Twitter, right? So he put out a, a survey about, you know, should Twitter allow an edit button on Twitter? Now, I don't know anything about Twitter, but apparently once you type a tweet, you can't edit it. Um, and the public came back and said, yes, we would like an edit button. And Twitter came out immediately after that and said, well, we were already considering that and developing it on our own. So there's already a kind of <laughs> back and forth between current Twitter management and Elon Musk. So if in fact Elon Musk wants to become what we call an activist shareholder, an activist shareholder is someone who buys into the company with deep pockets, like a Carl Icahn. Um, someone with deep pockets, like an Elon Musk, who comes onto a company and he either or she wants to move the company in a different business direction. They don't like current management and they want to they think it's undervalued or they think they can do some good. So they come on to become an activist business investor, or you can have activist shareholders who wanna make ideological changes to the company, i.e. more free speech, if it's, that's Elon Musk motivation, and I don't know. Apparently it probably is, but I don't know. So once you come on as an activist shareholder, by the way, when you purchase as much as 9.8%, which he did, you actually have to make certain filings with the SEC. And one of those filings, depending upon which one you file, indicates either you're investing that much money in the company um, as purely an investor passively, or you have to identify yourself as an activist shareholder. Now, obviously you can invest one day as a passive guy, make that filing, and then the next day, 
actually become an activist. You changed your, you know, your, your thought process. Well, he actually filed the form for a passive non-activist shareholder. Do I think that actually matters in this case? No, because <laughs> he can change his, his mind and do a different filing tomorrow. So he buys I mean, money. He says, I, I thought I saw somewhere that in one of the filings, and I'm not familiar with all the SEC filings, there was something about that um, he did want to make some changes to the company or, or make some adjustments to the, um, to the direction the company's going or its policies. Or so. I thought there was some, some yeah. representation of that in, in some SEC filing. You know, I haven't seen them. I've, I've been hearing you know, reports like you as well on, on different right. matters. And, and it's easy to go on to the SEC and track the filings. I have not done so. Um, neither of us have the time for that right now. But I was reading stories and the story I read indicated that he did not. Now, he might have filed one originally and then changed it. Um, and indeed, his activity on Twitter, on his own account, which has millions of followers, and he has enormous social media influence, in addition to just great business influence because of his success. So he buys into the company. Now, let's suppose he wants to move the company in this free speech way. And we've already seen issues, right? There was reports that some senior members of the company have quit in protest over the fact that he's going to take out their, um, you know, pro-democratic, pro-progressive filtering and editing, right? So, and move it into a more libertarian free speech posture. So let's suppose that's his motivation. Now, um, Twitter invited him on the board, so he's now a board member. Now, Twitter apparently, and again, I haven't looked at the filings, but from the news reports, they apparently have created a mechanism that if you own more than 15% of the company, you can't be on the board. Now, that's not statutory or regulatory. That's just Twitter. And um, that's often one of the mechanisms that a management of a company, a current management, institutes to avoid or preclude a hostile takeover. So what is a hostile takeover? A hostile takeover, again, is when a individual or business and investor group wants to take over a company for business or ideological reasons. And the business reasons can be they think it's got a lot of great assets that they want to take into their company. And the present management doesn't want anything to do with this takeover um, candidate uh, or the take one who's taking over. Um, it could be that the um, investor who wants to take over the company sees the company is undervalued and it can um, institute certain changes and bring value to it and make a lot of money or like Elon Musk potentially ideological he wants to move into a free speech vein it's it would be easier for him to do that than start his own platform because he has the money to do it so what would a hostile takeover involve one he could go into the stock market like he just did and just keep buying shares. Now, to do that, though, is can hurt. It can hurt because the more shares he buys, the, the greater the price goes up and he's paying more money to acquire more and more stock. And there's only so much stock available in the public markets. So he might not be able to take control immediately. And then he has to buy it in stages. And plus, a company like Twitter, and I don't know what its value is, but um, that could even put a dent to get 51%, to get enough control of the company. We'll talk about that. It could put a serious dent in his pockets, and he wants that money to help Tesla and to help his boring company and SpaceX. So he's not willing to go there yet. The other approach is to buy a sufficient amount of stock and 9.8 is sufficient. And especially because he's now the single largest investor. He owns more than Jack Dorsey, and he owns more than the biggest institutional investor, at least according to the news reports, Vanguard. So that means that as the single largest investor, and was and literally a very substantial social media influence, Twitter invites him on the board and is going to listen to him because think about this 
Imagine Elon Musk, who just jacked the price up 30% just by being involved, starts getting sideways with current management. And the current management has board control. And how does that happen? Well, the Jack Dorsey and his buddies who are now running the company, Jack Dorsey stepped aside as a, as a CEO, but he's still on the board and he's still a major shareholder. Um, let's suppose that um, they don't like Elon Musk and what he's trying to do. So um, he says, look, at the next board meeting, I want to elect my slate of directors so that I can control the board. Right now, Jack Dorsey selected the board members and he controls the board, no question. But let's suppose Elon says, well, I want my board. And they say, no, we're not gonna give you that opportunity. You can't put your own board. Well, he can say, fine, then I'm going to engage in what's called a proxy fight. Most investors, stockholders, John Q Public don't actually vote for directors. And if they do, they have very small voting power. But if you can aggregate those people, then you can get more power. So Elon Musk would go to Vanguard, an institutional investor, and say, look, I want to move this toward a libertarian free speech perspective, and I want to make better business decisions than Twitter has, and I'm successful, and I've got all this money. Join me. Well, if Vanguard joins him, then he's got even more power, probably close to 15%. And when he puts together his own list of board members, he can demand that the company send out a proxy request of the general public and say, you don't have to think about voting for directors, just agree that I have your proxy. And most public investors that actually look at their various mailings and emails from the company would look at that. And if they're Elon Musk, you know, fans, they either think he's a brilliant businessman or they like his free speech, they're going to check the mark. But even if they don't think very much about these issues and they're still willing to check the proxy, they're going to get two sets of proxies, one from the company and one from Elon Musk. Well, if they're kind of just doing it blindly, 50% are gonna pick one and 50% are gonna pick the other. And Elon Musk already has an advantage because he's got his 9% and maybe Vanguard's, which gets him to 15. So he doesn't need 50% of the company to control it. If he has his and 50% of the voting shareholders proxy, he can control. And if he gets that control, it's not a given, and I'll talk about why not. Then he appoints his board members and he controls the company. Once you have the board, you control. There's a rule under Delaware law and all these companies are situated in Delaware and it's called the business judgment rule. Courts will not second guess the judgment of boards. They give them almost carte blanche as long as it's not um, a conflict of interest issue or something along those lines, fraud, um, it ha would have to be a pretty egregious crime or tort, civil wrong for the courts to intervene. So companies can make stupid decisions and they still satisfy his business judgment. So what will Twitter do? Well, Twitter's already done one thing. If you've got 15%, you can't be on the board. And that puts an, an investor who's trying to take over the company in a very weak position. Other things they do. You've probably heard of the poison pill. So corporations will have a bylaw that says, if any investor gets more than 15% or 20%, whatever they think the number is to indicate a hostile takeover, the company automatically must sell off its prize assets. So no investor you know, with any intelligence was going to take that much of an interest in the company and risk the company selling off the prize assets. There's golden parachutes, where if you get more than X percent of stock, then the company has to provide this buyout of current management at an absorbent price. 
So the investor says, why should I benefit all the current management that I think are no good if I acquire X percent, 20 percent, 15 percent, whatever that number is, they're going to get billions of dollars in a buyout. I don't want that. So there's various tactics and there's dilution tactics. If someone acquires 15 percent, the company will automatically issue, um, you know, 50 percent more stock and dilute them down. There's all sorts of tactics. Becoming a, a hostile takeover is difficult. What is Elon Musk's advantage here? Elon Musk's advantage is that he, unlike a Carl Icahn and other type of takeover specialist, he's assuming he's doing it for ideological reasons. And because he has such an enormous social media influence, imagine he goes to the company and says, you better put my board members on. I'm taking over Twitter. They said, are you out of your mind? You know, we're running this company. We get the stock options. We're personally benefiting and we're liberal. We're progressives. We don't like your viewpoint. Get out of the room. And he says, yeah, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell my stock and in one little shot and drive the price down. And then I'm going to go on social media and say, this is the worst run company of crooks I've ever seen in my life. What do you think that's going to do? If me just joining the company increased the stock price 30%, imagine if I give it a thumbs down and I leave the company overnight. What is that going to do to the stock price? That's going to have a massive, massive impact on the decision-making process at the board. He's got outlier power and influence that most investors don't. So. Is this a brilliant move on the part of Elon Musk? If I were a betting man and I'm not, I would say yes. He knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, a couple of things. One, you you uh, you mentioned about Delaware law, and I, I think you you said they're situated in Delaware. Now, most of these companies, like Twitter's, out in the Silicon Valley, California, but but so many companies, and you'll you'll see this even if by happenstance, they're incorporated. In Delaware, right? So they can have the benefits of Delaware's corporate law, which is um, the most corporate favorable, I think, in general law of any state in the country. And so that's why so many companies are Delaware corporations. Is that right? Right, right. Yeah. And so, right, they're, they're incorporated in Delaware, and then they're, they're a what's called a foreign corporation doing business in California. They have to follow California law. Which is interesting. There's an interest to show you how, and doing business in California is incredibly difficult and expensive because of all the regulations and anti business. So, for example, just recently, last week, California passed a law that says you have to have a certain number of minorities on your board. You have to have, you know, the Rainbow Coalition. Well, someone challenged that and said, that's unconstitutional. And it was held to be unconstitutional. You can't, they, they, they still have, and it's been, it's been challenged in court. The court just hasn't ruled. A rule saying you have to have certain number of women on the board. But of course, I would ask the question of leftists, what do you mean? How can, how can you define what a woman is? <laughs> ask the Supreme Court Justice nominee. Yeah, well, <laughs> Wait, she doesn't know. And, and by the way, I think I'm black and Latino and American Indian. How do you know I, I identify as such? Yeah. <laughs> Why can't I be? Yeah, that's interesting, right? You, you have to have so many women, but like, you know, they're, they're a Supreme Court justice that they, they're nominating here. Can't tell you what a woman is. <laughs> it just says how many of these people are. Um, on, this, on the proxy vote thing, it's kind of interesting. So if you, own, if you owned one share of Twitter, and they were going to have a vote on the board of directors, you would then get a, a ballot. Is that right? And, and it would be weighted based on how many shares that you actually owned, or do you get yeah. the number of ballots per shares? Or how does that all work? Right. So if you own one share of Twitter, and there's probably millions of shares out there, um, there don't have to be. So, you, you, for example, George Soros's company, um, not George Soros, Warren Buffett company, right? What's the name of his company? His big company. Yeah. Uh, escapes me right now, but um, the price of that stock is like thousands of dollars. So there's fewer shares, but a company like Twitter has millions of shares. So if you own a, one share, you own 
you know, very little percentage-wise, 0. 0.0000. And that's the vote you get. Now, some companies will have different class of shares that have different voting. That's another mechanism to prevent a hostile takeover. So the company will issue to its current owners, the managers, um, a special class of stock that has super voting rights. So no matter how many common shares that Elon Musk can buy on the stock market, he doesn't have the special shares. Um, I don't know that Twitter has that class of share, uh, but given his power in the social media and the business world, it probably doesn't matter. He's still going to be able to get his way. So, yeah. So if you have, so for example, if you had, uh, so he has, you know, nine, say 10%, he has 10% share. And so if, you know, 100% of his 10% share voters vote in his favor, whereas only a fraction of the other 90% share either vote or, or don't vote, you know, in the other way. So you could have significant power with just a 10% vote, particularly if he's the highest, if he has the, the you know, the highest in, investor, and the next highest, I think, is Dorsey, like with 8%, 2% less, then you actually have a very diluted opposition vote compared to a very concentrated and likely highly motivated uh, fraction of voters. Um, so even with all these other mechanisms they put in place, even the 15% share limitation and so forth, you could have a very active, energized 10% voting block that at the end of the day, could still overcome all these other obstacles and, and allow for a takeover. And do you think that Elon Musk, Musk, that wouldn't, that's not part of the calculus that he took when he did this? Oh yeah. I mean, the guy's brilliant. So, and, and my, I'm willing to bet as well that um, he'll reach out to Vanguard. Vanguard is one of the largest institutional investors in the world. They manage pension money. I mean, in the trillions of dollars, huge. So, um, are they more business than ideological? Is that kind of so they they would look at this and say, ah, this is going to help our bottom line. I don't care about this free speech stuff. I'm just trying to line our pockets. That's right. That's right. So and he brings both. Elon Musk brings that you know the the gravitas of the of the business acumen plus the speech issue. And if with that business acumen gravitas, you're going to bring the people on who only care about money and could care less about these free speech issues, election issues, and so forth. Right. And that's exactly right. And, and even more than that, keep in mind that most, even the progressive Twitter users and the progressive investors in Twitter, right? So um, even if they like the idea that Twitter censors speech, censors it from its own progressive ideological base, and on behalf of the Democratic Party and the Biden administration, even if they like that, keep in mind that, that the, and there's talk about, well, let's, let's leave Twitter and start our own very censored free speech, you know, non-free speech platform. It's stupid because the idea of censoring speech by the government is to end that speech, right? Or to make it very hard to speak that way. Well, Starting another platform um, and leaving Twitter doesn't change the fact that if Elon Musk takes over and allows everyone to talk, then the progressives get to talk. I get to talk as an Orthodox Jewish conservative. You get to talk. Everyone gets to talk. So the idea that people are going to leave Twitter to be censored is kind of silly you get the idea that people want to leave Twitter to go to a free speech platform, right? Because on Twitter, they're not allowed to speak like right. our client, Dr. Huber. Right. Which I was just going to transition right to that because that's the good transition. So you mentioned our client, Dr. Huber and talking about Twitter, we've mentioned before um, this lawsuit, we have class action lawsuit as it were against uh, Twitter on behalf of Dr. Huber and all similarly situated uh, plaintiffs, those who have been censored from Twitter based on, and it's, it's quite frankly, in, in her case, it's not even based on political views. It's based on presenting um, medical evidence that the, uh, that the, regarding the efficacy and, and harmfulness and so forth of vaccines that does not coincide with the Biden administration's uh, propaganda ministry in terms of the message to be sent out and working as a partner, using their own words, with Twitter, 
have decided that they are going to cleanse uh, the Twitter platform of any uh, speech um, about the uh, about vaccine vaccines, their efficacy that doesn't go along with the uh, the Biden administration's talking points. And uh, that's as you'd mentioned before here, and as we know, Twitter is a private entity, so they're not uh, restricted by the First Amendment. First Amendment is only a break on the power of government. However, if you conspire with the government, uh, that's a different issue altogether, and it is in fact state action. So, David, you're the lead on this case. Why don't you kind of fill in the uh, fill in the gaps there and, and let our listeners know where we're standing on this case? Okay, so for our listeners, we represent Dr. Colleen Huber. She's a naturopathic physician, licensed physician in Arizona. And she's a big advocate of obviously natural approaches to treatment of disease, et cetera. And when the um, vaccine for COVID came out and became a mandate, she began to tweet on her Twitter account that had thousands of followers, um, questions, and issues relating to um, how quickly this was approved through emergency authorization, the questions about efficacy and safety. Um, And she had gotten some warnings apparently, but the offense that caused Twitter to terminate her, permanently suspend her account, was she simply linked to a very reputable Israeli news service, and Israel was um, very much uh, at the forefront of imposing COVID protocols on its population, on forcing vaccines, Um, and they became like a little laboratory for um, many of these pharmaceutical companies to see what worked and what didn't work. So there was a news story on this very reputable news um, outlet in it from Israel, that questioned the data that the Israeli government was utilizing to determine the risk of bad outcomes from the COVID vaccine. And it's cited to research and analysis by scientists. Uh, All she did was link to the story. Twitter permanently suspended her account and refused her any opportunity to even appeal. I mean, that's how draconian and tyrannical these people are. So we sued. And we sued because what we saw in news media reports was a clear connection of a conspiracy between Twitter and the Biden administration. That the Biden administration wanted to go have a war, their language, against anyone who would criticize vaccines or go against the Biden administration narrative on vaccines. And the news articles indicated that the Biden administration did not believe that Twitter and the other social media oligarchs, you know, we talk about the Russian oligarchs. Well, these social media types are just as much an oligarchical society in line with the Democrat media complex. So the news articles showed that the Biden administration didn't believe that Twitter and Facebook and all the other oligarchs were doing enough. So they called them into the White House. They lectured them not just to promote government speech and to censor uh, our client and other uh, conservative voices um, tweets. They actually told them how to do it. Not just what is the goal, but how we want you to accomplish this goal. Now, that's a conspiracy. Once Twitter did something by censoring Dr. Huber's speech, that is a conspiracy by definition of law. So we sued on behalf of Colleen Huber and all similarly situated plaintiffs in a potential class action. The Biden administration, President Biden and Twitter. By the way, guess who's representing Twitter? one of the mega law firms in the world that represents the Democrat Party and Hillary Clinton campaign, Perkins Coie. And if you're not too familiar with Perkins Coie, Perkins Coie's, one of their partners 
is in now being indicted by the prosecutor Durham for giving false information because he, Perkins Cooey, went to the FBI with this whole fake Trump-Russia collusion story in an effort to damage Trump's campaign and then afterward in an effort to essentially destroy the Trump administration. And he's now facing serious federal charges of lying to the FBI. So Perkins Cooey is representing Twitter and Biden and T Twitter filed a motion, their own separate motions to dismiss saying, gee, you know, forget all the news stories of the partnership between Biden and Twitter. For, come on, forget about the 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 fact that we had to go to the White House and they took they they told us we had to fall in line and they even told us how to to you know prevent Dr. Colleen Huber from speaking. Forget all that. There's there's no cause of action here to show that Twitter was a state actor, i.e. in conspiracy with Biden. Because again, remember, if Twitter is acting on its own and there's no conspiracy, there's no First Amendment violation. There might be other types of issues, state law, but there's no constitutional issue. The judge, Judge Danny Chen from the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, that's San Francisco, um, heard our arguments, read our briefs. Um, we actually thought he was being, during the oral argument, fairly thoughtful, but that is a big asterisk because Rob and I went into that argument thinking, you know, this guy is, there's no way in the world he's going to look at the facts and rule by the law. Well, um, he came out with his decision a couple weeks ago at granting the motions to dismiss with prejudice, meaning this lawsuit can never be filed again. And essentially his opinion was, gee, you know, the facts that the American Freedom Law Center puts in their complaint, you know, I just, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy that Twitter really had the conspiracy I think they just did it based upon their own ideological bias, which doesn't violate the constitution and their own terms of service. All this stuff about what they did with the Biden administration and the conspiracy, I'm just gonna ignore it. Now, guess what? That violates the law. The judge simply did not follow the law. The law is on a motion to dismiss, which is an early motion that whatever facts I allege that are not conclusory, that have actual factual legs to them, like news stories and quotations from Twitter and the Biden administration, those are the facts for purposes of the court looking at the law and deciding, is there enough of a case here to go to the next stage, discovery and depositions? I've been at this for nearly four decades. And I can tell you that the facts that we alleged establish a conspiracy. And I deal with conspiracy in my commercial practice in terms of civil conspiracies all the time. And this alleged a conspiracy. It's not surprising. Doesn't shock me that the judge ruled against us. And we told our client that this is what we expect. So we, last week, filed our notice of appeal. We're going to go to the Ninth Circuit. And um, do I think we're, unless we get some good Trump judges, and he did appoint quite a few judges to the Ninth Circuit, um, do I think we'll get a full and fair hearing there? Or will it be ideologically driven? Well, you know my view of the thing. It's going to be ideologically driven. And we're going to end up filing a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court and and asking the Supreme Court, it's not a mandatory uh, appeal, it's permissive, in other, um, meaning that the Supreme Court has the right to decide that they're going to hear it or not. And typically, they don't hear writs of certiorari, but we're certainly going to end up going that far. Could be we get some good judges in the Ninth Circuit. 
Could yeah, be. There are some. I mean, the Ninth Circuit has surprised me probably more than any of the other circuits more recently because of the Trump appointee. So I'm, I still, I'm, I'm always uh, optimistic that we'll something will be done correctly <laughs> in the yeah. in the courts. We keep trying. That's for dang sure. Um, you know, interesting. But, one of, you know, the, let me just say, why is the, our lawsuit and this issue with Elon Musk that comes together? Why is it so critical? And let's keep putting things back in the proper context. When Obama was president and Clapper, and I always remember, forget the, and Brennan, Brennan. were involved, and Comey were part of the, the um, intelligence services in the FBI, right? The enforcement arm, the CIA, the National Director of Intelligence, all those folks with Obama got together with the Hillary Clinton campaign folks and Perkins Cooey types and decided that they were going to have the Clinton campaign float this idea of a Russian conspiracy in order to destroy or to affect the election results. And the media, Democrat media complex, went along with it, of course. All we heard about was Trump, was Trump you know, being the rump of Putin. <laughs> being you know, in collusion, in conspiracy, um, subject to blackmail for all of his bad acts that he did in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. And indeed, that did affect the election. And we saw them bury the Hunter Biden computer story, right? All of this, when you, when you juxtapose that kind of effort to destroy Trump's campaign, against the claim that the Russian trolls, a few folks putting you know, comments on social media somehow affected the campaign is a joke. The Democrats ran wild with the idea that Putin working for Trump somehow affected the election by having a couple you know, dozen trolls post on various media, social media accounts that you know, things against Hillary and pro-Trump, that that somehow affected the election. And of course, there's no evidence that it did, and it would not have, versus this massive campaign by the government, a special prosecutor, and the media to make Trump a essentially a um, puppet candidate for Putin had a massive effect. When Trump still won the election, and maybe in part because Hillary was a bad candidate, also in part because Hillary violated the, the law on top secret um, preservation of, of communications. She used her private phone for all of her emails and text and so forth. Even though Trump won, this effort continued all the way through his administration and the impeachments. And that massive corruption of one, the election process, and then of an administration is in my mind, absolutely criminal. And the fact that we still haven't seen prosecutions is just shameful. But that's why it's important because Twitter works with, conspires with in the same way that Meta, you know, Google, Facebook, all these companies have worked with the progressives, the democratic media complex to affect the way that the direction in which this country is going. And I think criminal ways. You know, um, one thing I want to, I just want to take one step back because you, you, you've set up the segue for what I want to talk about next about the, the whole uh, Hunter Biden story and and how you know Twitter was one of the the principal um, players in that you know suppression of a very very important uh, news story, one that polls have shown likely could have um, affected the outcome of the of the latest election. In addition to all these other things you talked about, but you know when you when you were talking about what the standard was, the judge had to apply, and this is. Under the federal rules, it's Rule Twelve, which is what the motion was under. Not only does the, is the judge required required as a matter of law at this stage to accept 
all the factual allegations that we allege as true, even if he believes that they're not true. He has to accept them as true. He also has to accept all reasonable inferences that can be drawn from those facts in our favor. So even if a fact has two or three different inferences that could be drawn from it, the one that is most favorable to us, the court has to accept as, as true in part of this. So, and because the whole point is you, you, I mean, at this point, we don't have discovery, right? We have open sources. We have information that we, we've pulled together to, to, you know, basically we, you know, each one of these facts, as we talk about their, their, uh, you know, tiles in a mosaic that paint a story that show that there's a conspiracy. And even the courts have said time and time again, in case after case, you prove a conspiracy through circumstantial evidence, right? Most criminals or people engaged in unlawful agreement don't write it down and put the terms in a contract, right? There's all little bits and pieces you put together and you use circumstantial evidence to show that there was an agreement for this to take place and that there was an act in furtherance of that. That's a conspiracy. And we, we've more, more than required under the rules, set forth the appropriate facts. And then when you draw all the reasonable inferences of those facts, it's, it's unquestionably um, that we've alleged a conspiracy. And because what that, this is just a pleading stage. And then we have to go about the business proving those facts. But we're at the part, we're at the allegation phase and, and he dismissed us at the allegation phase because they don't want us to get into into the depositions and the and the discovery and get all those smoking gun emails, which, um, you know, hopefully are still out there and not, you know, disappeared with uh, with laptops and everything else <laughs> with that or somebody busted them up like Hillary Clinton with all that information that you that she had on her uh, on her laptop. So let's talk about because this is this is related to, you know, the Hunter Biden story. Right. Twitter was one of the also. Um, right. They they shut down the um, I think it was the New York uh, Post who had broke one of the major stories on uh, on the Hunter Biden story. And breaking said, story. Oh, breaking story. It was the key, the key story. And, and this and like I said, there's been polling data since that said that would have made a, di a difference. Uh, and and it's and there's such a there's, there's such a media cover up and including social media on this that it's just it's 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 really it's it's mind boggling and, and it's mind boggling in a way that it. It did have an impact on the last election. I mean, these are these are serious actions taken by um, by the media and social media. You sent me a political cartoon, which I think kind of sets this up pretty well. It says, "If a tree falls in the swamp, and the mainstream media won't report it, will anyone hear about it?" Question mark. And the tree uh, on it says, "Biden corruption, China, Ukraine, Russia." Right. Think about this hunter. This hunter Biden story isn't just about Hunter Biden. Right. Because Hunter Biden, who's a, you know, a, who has by his own admission, has zero experience in these business ventures that he was invited to participate in with Ukraine, with you know, associated with his ties with China. He's getting money from Russia. These are all the the areas where, you know, his dad was uh, put in charge of uh, as the vice president. And it's, it's very clear that he was selling his name. Uh, to these organizations to make millions and millions of dollars that if his last name, you know, if it was based on his first name, it wouldn't matter. It's all because of his last name. And, and there's plenty of evidence showing that even though despite uh, Joe Biden's claims that he didn't, doesn't know anything about his son's business dealings, those are just plainly false, plainly false. And think about the, the, the impact of this type of corruption in the government with, you know, Think about what's going on right now geopolitically with Ukraine, Russia, and China. And you've got the president's son tied in with these shady business dealings with these companies. And it seems to me from the things that I've seen that the entire family has been benefiting uh, benefiting from all this. So, David, we uh, kind of transition. Again, it's related to all this, all this stuff with Twitter because Twitter was one of the ones also that was instrumental in shutting down this, uh, this story as it as during the election, which would have had an impact. Now, all of a sudden, the Washington Post and the New York Times have, are finding some interest in this story, you know, post-election. David, your thoughts? Yeah, you know, if we get into the weeds a little bit, let's, the New York Post, which is, you know, a conservative um, leaning newspaper, um, but they're the, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, um, continuously in print newspaper in the country. This is not, you know, some rag. Now, they received the actual hard drive 
from the Hunter Biden computer that was left in one of his drug-induced states at a computer store. And they published the story. And what did the story at the time include? It didn't just include the fact that Hunter Biden was a drug addled, you know, porn, sex nut. It included the fact that his business dealings with Russia and China, Russia and China, in the turn in the to, to the amount of millions of dollars paid to him without any experience. He's a lawyer, but he's never really practiced, and he has no business experience to speak of. The evidence from this computer indicated that he was using his father's name and connections to do his business. It also indicated that Joe Biden was very much aware of that and utilizing the money from this business for his own advancement politically and what have you. All of those emails that gave that evidence were substantiated by a businessman who was a former naval officer, successful businessman, no particular Democratic or Republican, rather, connections, and who was working with Hunter Biden as one of the CEOs of one of his company, corroborated the fact that they were doing business in China, for example, utilizing the father's name, President Biden's name, and actually hiding a percentage of the company's wealth in that was going to go to President Biden by covering up his name and calling him the big guy. And that he personally spoke with President Biden at least on two occasions about the business dealings and his involvement to help the business. Now you had all of this evidence granted maybe the mainstream media didn't have the absolute forensic provenance of this computer, but you have all these emails that are being substantiated by a second party. That's a story. You have two sources. They're credible enough. Certainly you run with it. And it's not just about Hunter Biden being a corrupt, you know, son of the president. It's about the potential current, you know, the guy who's running for president and then becoming president, his involvement in helping this drug-addled crook. I mean, Hunter Biden is a criminal. He engaged in illegal drugs. He had a gun that he lost and didn't report. He's got tax liability issues that are being investigated, money laundering issues, and his father is implicated. Now, the media took the view at the time, we're not going to cover it. But not only that, Twitter, again, in part of this Democrat media complex, took the incredible step to suspend the New York Post Twitter account. Imagine suspending one of the oldest newspapers in the country's account because you don't like what it says. And what was their rationale? The rationale was, well, we don't, you know, we don't know enough about the provenance of all this material. Of course they did. It was there. You had third party individuals who had done business with Hunter Biden corroborating the emails that were implicating President Biden as a candidate and as president, corroborating. So you would have to assume these people were just lying even though they're not Republican stooges, there's no real Republican connection. They were partners with Hunter corroborating this information. And then the media said, well, even if, okay, poor Hunter, you know, he's, he's one of these victims who's got drug problems. His brother died, you know, this happened, that happened. We forgive him. He's a poor schlemiel. There's no real evidence that President Biden's involved. Of course there was. And that's still their line. You know, this is a story about Hunter. It's not about the president. That's false. We now have clear evidence. The New York Times and the Washington Post, two years later, have said, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess these emails are real. But it's, you know, there's not much of a story here about the president. When in fact, 
All you have to do is scratch the surface and see there is a wealth of information, of data, of evidence that President Biden lied, as did the media. Now, take another step back. Okay, let's suppose the media at the time, two years ago, was correct. Uh, we don't know enough about the provenance of this computer. Now, com compare two different sets of, of, of data. When it came to the Russian collusion story and Trump, and if one of his kids went off on a business you know, trip to, to Moscow, the media ran with Russia collusion nonstop. They, they took a dossier that they had no idea where it was from, happened to come from a private investigator who was hired by Perkins Cooley on behalf of Hillary campaign to create this dossier that had all these stories about Trump and, and his wild exploits in Russia and that Putin was blackmailing him to be his puppet. They ran with that story as if it were absolute gold. But a computer and an actual hard drive that's been corroborated by third party witnesses who actually did business with Hunter, that's not a story. Think about that. And the second data point is that Let's suppose we don't know where all this computer came from. A bunch of intelligence, you know, officials, former intelligence officials like Brennan, like Clapper, they, they published this open letter that said, ignore the story of the computer folks, ignore the story of the president's involvement, Biden, and why? because this is likely Russian disinformation. Now, did they have any evidence that it was Russian disinformation? No, but all of a sudden, all of the media headlines, this stupid letter with no factual basis, all of the headlines were Russian disinformation. Forget the computer. It's all Russian disinformation. It's all part of Trump's collusion with Russia. That story runs as absolute truth, the actual hard drive with corroborating evidence gets dismissed and the Russian collusion story in the dossier becomes the truth. That's how corrupt the media is and the social media oligarchs of Jack Dorsey. I call Jack Dorsey right now an absolute oligarch part of the Democrat media complex and Twitter and Facebook and Zuckerberg. These are all, in my view, criminals involved in this massive conspiracy to undermine the previous election, to undermine the previous administration, the Trump administration, and to promote the Democrat progressive agenda. Yeah, these, there's, uh, there's zero shame on their part, these so-called intelligence uh, intelligence experts, they they don't care because they know that the same Democrat media, you know, complex, which you know also has the Department of Justice in their back pocket, and these guys are 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 have immunity. Something something big is going to have to shake up. We got to we got to you know bust up what's going on here, and that's why I think Trump was a threat to them because he's one of the he's one of the few guys. That's uh, that's willing to go toe to toe and is not part of the swamp. And I think DeSantis in Florida is the same way. Um, I, there's a lot there. That was a, that was a, a great summary. Uh, we are at our at our closing point here. So I don't know if you had any one last uh, you know line or two that to, to wrap up, or we I'll, I'll close this one uh, this one up. And I'm sure there's going to be more to this story and the Twitter case and everything else and, and follow on uh, podcasts. All good here. All right, good. So as I said, that's, uh, that's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you for joining us. We always look forward to our next dis discussion. As, uh, as you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble channel. Uh, we officially dumped a YouTube, Facebook, um, and our podcasts are posted on Spotify, Stitcher, and perhaps other platforms where you listen to your podcasts and where the sensors uh, will allow them to play. Um, and if you, if you like the content of these, uh, the video cast podcasts, uh, we ask you please follow us. And uh, please spread the word. Uh, thank you again. May God bless you and may he continue to bless America. Amen.